I am the Lord your God who brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not steal. Well, the kids ages four years old through kindergarten can be dismissed now to Children's Church. And uh, while they're, they're going out, I'll just say, um, if you get the chance, please go say hello to Carolyn after this service and thank her for all of her faithful service. I just want to get my plug in to say, go do that. Go give her a hug and tell her thank you, especially if she's watched and cared for your kids um, in these last years. She's been a dear friend to me, um, and, uh, and we're going to miss her a lot around the office and here at our church. Well, once upon a time, when we wanted to watch a movie, we would drive down to the nearest blockbuster store in those dark ages. <laughs> and after you rented that movie and drove home and popped it into your VCR or maybe even DVD player, you would hear this intense music start to play. It was like, boom, 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 boom. And then after that, you would see this girl sitting at a big cube computer. And, and, and then you would see the words pop on the screen. You wouldn't steal a car. And then this guy goes and he's like putting a, a, an iron in the car to try to jack the car. And then he, there's like four other iterations of that. You wouldn't steal this. You wouldn't steal that. And then it's like, if you wouldn't do that, you shouldn't steal movies either. And it would have this thing that says, pirating is a crime. And this was the anti-piracy ad that was played at the beginning of every single movie in this era to remind all of us collectively that downloading movies illegally from the internet was stealing. Our society must have had and did have a big enough problem with that that we had this whole ad campaign that went at the beginning of every movie to correct that. And the ad became personal for me one day early in high school, whenever there was a speaker that came to do an assembly at school, and we didn't know what this assembly was going to be for, and we all show up in our school cafeteria, and this speaker starts talking about the, all of the particular punishments that can be given out for how much music or how many gigabytes of movies you download illegally from the internet. And he was from the FBI or something. And all of my friends, meanwhile, are sitting there with this software called LimeWire or Napster on our computer, by which we would use to download thousands of songs illegally. And so I'm like, oh, I'm for sure going to jail. <laughs> and this is a funny story 15 years later because everything's dated and it's a different time now, but I think it reveals something that's true about me and about all of us, is that it is easy to move the goalpost on the Eighth Commandment. It's easy to, to justify ourselves and to mess with the definition of God's law when it is convenient for us to download movies or music or whatever else it might be. And for Alunga, honestly sharing, it's easy to change that definition just to steal a dollar to look good at lunch. And if we're honest, the reason why we change this commandment and redefine God's law is because deep down, all of us believe that in some way, God is holding out on us. That at his core, God is stingy with us. But what I hope we'll all come to know and experience this morning as we study this commandment together is that obedience to the command, do not steal, begins 
when we know God not as a cruel taker, not even as a stingy giver, but as a generous giver. And so if you would pray with me that the Lord would help us to understand his word this morning, and then we'll study it together. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word, and we ask that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Lord, I pray that as we hear your word this morning, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we would be softened by it, and we would be encouraged and spurred on to delight in your law and live for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to study this commandment this morning under three headings. And I'm just going to give you a caveat at the outset. They're a little bit cumbersome, but I had three Ps in a row, so I had to go for it. So we'll explain what they mean as we go. So the first is the presupposition behind the commandment. We're going to talk about what that word presupposition means in a second. The presupposition behind the commandment, the prohibition of the commandment, and the promise in the commandment. So what does this commandment presuppose? What does it prohibit and require of us? And then lastly, what does it promise to us? So first, the presupposition behind it. Now, what the heck is a presupposition? (laughs) Well, simply put, a presupposition is a precondition for some other statement to be true. So in order for this given statement to be true, something else has to come before it and stand underneath it in order for that statement to be true. So for example, in in order for a physical therapist to prescribe various different activities to a patient in order to rehabilitate a muscle or a muscle group, they they are presupposing countless truths from human biology and physical science in order to arrive at that prescribed true uh, prescription they give to their patient. So presupposition is kind of a terrible word to use in a sermon, right? Because I have to explain it. But I think it's important. I I think it helps us get at something that's important to understand when we come to this commandment, do not steal. So we might define stealing simply as taking something that does not belong to you. We'll just work with that definition for now. Taking something that does not belong to you. So then, what is the presupposition behind the command not to take something that does not belong to you? So to prohibit stealing, to take something that doesn't belong to you, it must be assumed that things belong to people. So for for me to steal money from you that money must first, in some sense, be rightly yours in order to call that stealing. The Eighth Commandment implies some form of ownership. That's what undergirds the commandment. And and let's think about this in the context of Israelite history. We've done this several times throughout our series. So where we meet Israel when they're receiving the Ten Commandments, they're at the base of Mount Sinai as Moses is up on the mountain receiving the commandments from God. And they've journeyed through the wilderness. They've been freed as slaves from from Egypt, journey through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. And we don't know many details about their time in slavery, but we do know that it lasted for hundreds of years and that it was at many times cruel slavery. We know that much. 
And so as the people of Israel have just been freed from Egypt and wandered through the desert to get to Mount Sinai, I think it's safe to assume that the people of Israel here at the base of Mount Sinai didn't struggle with hoarding. There wasn't much to hoard. They didn't have very many, if any, possessions to call their own. They were a nomadic people group who had been freed from slavery, who were wandering to this home that God had promised, but without a home. But look at the kindness of God and the dignity that he bestows on these former slaves in this commandment. This commandment was a way of humanizing each person and family by giving to them something that was their own, that was protected. God was creating an environment of security for his people to begin to build lives and families as they started to try to build a life after having their humanity stripped from them in slavery in Egypt. And if you read on to the next few chapters, chapters 21 to 23 of Exodus, you see this command, do not steal, fleshed out into the rest of Israelite society. So if Pharaoh was a cruel taker, God, we see, is a generous giver. And in giving the Eighth Commandment, God restores back to his people part of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God. If if we look all the way back in the book of Genesis, at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read these words. They, They should sound familiar to a lot of you. It says there, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And there are many things we could pick out of that verse to talk about, but I want to focus on that word dominion. Now, what kind of a person has dominion? In our everyday life, that's normally not something that we say of ourselves. Rulers have dominion. Kings and queens have a dominion over which they preside. And so what the Bible's telling us in Genesis 1 is that part of what it means to be human, to be made in the image of God, is that we were made to function like kings and queens under God, ruling over his creation. But you'll notice We are not the ultimate rulers over creation. We were made merely to image God, not to be God. So we rule over God's creation, but God is the one who ultimately reigns over all that he has made. He is the rightful ruler. And so what it means to be made in the image of God is that we use the physical stuff of earth We have dominion over the physical stuff of earth, the the material and natural resources that God has given to us. And we use these things to bring glory to God as the ultimate king and ultimate ruler over all that he has made. So the presupposition behind the eighth commandment is explained in Genesis chapter one, that we are stewards of God's resources entrusted with them 
to bring him glory. The church father, John Chrysostom, who was this great preacher in the early church, he, he, he had this image to talk about stewardship. He, he talks about human beings, each being like an, an imperial treasurer, charged to take care of some of the king's wealth. So that's each of our tasks as human beings under God. And so as an imperial treasurer, somebody that's called to take care of the king's money, we're not free to use his money however we see fit. It's ultimately his money. We have to use his money for, the, for his own glory and honor. But we are, as his treasurers, as his stewards, given some form of ownership over some of the king's resources. God gives you and I possessions to use for the spread of his glory in the world. And so this commandment presupposes not only that human beings have ownership over certain things, but that this ownership is a stewardship entrusted to us by God for his glory. It presupposes that God owns everything and that we steward some of the things that God owns. And so what I want us to note here before we move on to talk about what this commandment means is that money and possessions are not inherently bad. They are good things that are good gifts from God to be used for his glory, to be stewarded for his glory. In an interview uh, that I read a few weeks ago, a Christian philanthropist and art collector named Roberta Amundsen gave a defense for why she spends her time and money as a Christian collecting what we might call stuff. Sorry if you're an artist out there. But, but physical material stuff like artwork. How does she as a Christian justify spending a lot of money to collect stuff? And in this interview, she helpfully rebuts a mindset that she calls as long as-ism. And what she means by that is the mindset that goes, well, we'll support the arts as long as everyone on earth has heard the gospel and as long as there's no more poor people and nobody else in the world is starving. Friends, at the outset of my sermon, let me be clear. Material possessions are not bad. Owning material stuff is not bad. In fact, part of what it means to be a human being is to be a steward over the good and beautiful and very material things of earth in a way that brings honor and glory to our God. And this is how Roberta Amundsen makes sense of being an art collector as a Christian. She's stewarding the beautiful things of earth for the glory of God, the one that all beauty ultimately points to. And so, in other words, the first question that we should ask when we begin to think about money and possessions is not how much can I have or how much can't I have, but the first question we as Christians should ask when we approach how to use our money and our possessions is why do I own what I own? 
And what am I using it for? I think that's a much more helpful question to ask. Well, now with all of that in the background, undergirding this commandment, let's move on to talk about what this, this commandment prohibits of us and what it requires of us. And let's continue with, with that image of us functioning as stewards over the king's resources, over God's resources. And let, let me circle back now and try to give a more robust definition of what stealing is with this framework in the back of our minds. I would say stealing is living as if we are the ultimate rulers over what God has entrusted to us and to others as stewards. Let me say that again. Stealing is living as if we are the ultimate rulers over what God has entrusted to us and others as stewards. As author Jen Wilkin writes helpfully, stealing prays, my kingdom come, my will be done. It turns to my neighbor and demands, give me this day my daily bread. Stealing is about us using God's resources to build our own kingdoms. And all forms of stealing then are not simply perpetrated against somebody else, but they are ultimately a robbery of God himself. Since, as we've seen already, he rightfully owns all things. And this helps us, I think, to broaden out our definition of, of where we might draw the line as in regards to what stealing actually is. So this commandment not only prohibits taking what's not ours, it also prohibits laziness, either slacking off at your job or not doing what you ought to be doing to provide for yourself and others. This commandment prohibits economic injustice of all kinds, particularly regarding the exploitation of the poor. Right, think about the signs you see when you drive through poor neighborhoods that, that advertise these like crazy loans that you can get at crazy low rates that then get jacked up and exploit the poor. This commandment prohibits all sorts of false types of advertising to get money out of people. We as a staff were just having lunch with a member of our church who's studying and living in Germany right now. And he said, before he went over, he, he got on the computer, looked up an apartment. The pictures online looked great, only to get over there. And, and after putting money into this place already, to see this place was a dump. That's stealing. But this commandment most broadly prohibits greed. What, what one pastor called stealing with the eyes of our heart. Uh, think about the last two weeks, how we've seen how Jesus has broadened out our understanding of the commandments. Think about murder, how he broadened that out to, to, to define murder as hating somebody in your heart. Or he, how he broadened out the commandment against adultery to be defined as any sort of lustful thought that we might have. And this way of thinking also applies to the eighth commandment. Greed, this stealing with our hearts, is a particularly deceptive sin. Pastor Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods, 
speaks of greed this way. I was struck by this as I was reading this book with somebody a few weeks ago. This is what Keller says. Nobody thinks they are greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come up to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. Jesus warns that people are far Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. In other words, greed is the water that we swim in. Greed is the oil that's burning in the pot while we all slowly cook without a care. As Keller says, we ought to begin with a working hypothesis that we likely break the Eighth Commandment, especially given our position as some of the most wealthy people on planet Earth. But but if that's what the commandment prohibits of us, what's required of us? What would it look like to keep and fulfill the Eighth Commandment? Or to rephrase it in the language we've been using so far in the sermon, how do we steward our resources for God's glory rather than gathering them and using them to build our own kingdoms? And I would submit to you that the foundational principle of biblical stewardship, the foundational principle involved in keeping the eighth commandment is radical generosity. Let me put it another way so that we feel the weight of it a little bit more. Righteous living with our money and possessions. So living that accords with God's right and good law and character. Righteous living with our money and possessions consists not only in not stealing, but in generously providing. That's what it looks like to keep the eighth commandment. And that's a big claim. And so so to get that to kind of sink down into our hearts, I want to take us to a few different spots in the scripture to kind of unearth that a little bit more. So let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28 together. If you have your Bibles or grab one of the Bibles there in the pew. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And as you're turning there, I'll just mention, this is a New Testament reiteration of this eighth commandment that we're looking at here this morning, but there, there's a difference from what we see in Ephesians 4 from what we see in the Eighth Commandment. Something is added that's really crucial to our understanding. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, it says, let the thief no longer steal. Okay, there we go. Eighth Commandment right there. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So based on this verse, 
the thief is required to work instead of stealing so that he has money to give to those in need. The, the fulfillment, the keeping of the eighth commandment, as it's restated here in Ephesians chapter 4, is not in not stealing, but in providing for the needs of others through honest work and gain. That's what it looks like to keep the eighth commandment. But if that's not, if that's not explicit enough for us, let's go to another passage. Let's all turn to Psalm 112. Let's go there together. Psalm 112, and we'll be in verse 5, and then we'll jump down to, to verse 9. And here in Psalm 112, the psalmist makes explicit for us the association between living righteously and generosity. So here we go. Psalm 112, we'll read verse 5 and then hop to verse 9. It says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. And down to verse 9. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. You see that there. The psalmist describes freely and generously giving to those in need, not simply as a good thing to do, not simply as the cream on top of a, a, a righteous life, the extra fluff on top, but as the substance of righteous living. That freely and generously giving is obedience to God's law. And notice too, just because we've had the Psalm 1 has been floating around in our series a lot. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the, in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, right? So notice the blessed is the man there, and the similarity in verse 5 with, it is well with the man who. It's interesting. I see a correlation there to what it looks like to live a righteous life that honors God's law. And this is also how our forefathers in the faith understood this commandment to apply positively to the Christian life. So several times throughout this series, we've, we've cited the, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Catechism. And these are old documents written about 400 years ago by Christians to help us as Christians learn the truths of the Bible. And in a question, question 141 in the Westminster Larger Catechism about the Eighth Commandment, we read there that the Eighth Commandment requires that we make, quote, an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. All of this together, I hope, makes that point very clear, that what the Eighth Commandment requires is not not stealing, but generously providing for the needs of other people. To say it in the starkest way that I know possible, to sum all this up, in the eyes of God, there are only two types of people. 
There are those who are radically generous stewards of God's resources, and there are thieves. And ultimately, this command urges us to give up control over our possessions, to acknowledge the reign of God, and to invest in what will last for God's glory. Jesus famously says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, I'll just read that for us. We don't all have to turn there. He says there, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, all investments require risk of some time, of some, of some kind. All investments are risky. And so for many of us, definitely for me, a guy who isn't very money savvy to begin with, anytime that I make an investment, I always talk it over with somebody that knows a lot more about money than I do. And I'm grateful to the few of you in this church who have helped me with that. Jesus here is giving us the wisdom of an eternally wise financial planner. He is advising all of us, urging all of us to use our money to invest in things that will count for eternity. Things that will resound for God's glory through the ages. I just want to acknowledge this church is so generous. In so many ways, I have so much to learn from so many of you about how to invest in eternal things that resound for God's glory. But, but for many of us, though, and I'll put myself in this category, our hearts struggle with greed. Our hearts struggle against being a thief. I want to invest in my own kingdom. And so how do we begin to loosen the chains of greed in our hearts? Well, first of all, Jesus teaches in this passage the, the principle in Matthew 6 that our hearts follow our money. So wherever we are investing our possessions, our heart will follow. And so if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're hit with that commandment, you're hit with that and you say, I, I am not a generous giver the way I ought to be. And if you desire to build patterns of generosity into your life, I would encourage you today, start now with your money, even if your heart isn't fully in it. Even if it's really hard, send your money out ahead of your heart and let your heart catch up with your money. Even today, look at your resources and start looking at where you might invest in the kingdom of God. And I promise you, as you seek the face of God, as you start to be generous and practice the discipline of generosity, your heart will catch up to your money. Whatever we're invested in, we are invested in in our hearts as well. And the other thing I would say by way of, of practical application of this command, that's gonna, I think, will make us all uncomfortable 
just because of the culture that we live in. It makes me uncomfortable to even say it, to be honest. But submit your finances to other Christians. I think it's so interesting how as a culture, we are so private about our money. And I think sometimes that hinders us from truly walking into generosity or truly following Jesus into generosity. I mean, you think about it, money is the thing that Jesus warns us about the most in his teaching. And yet, we, with a lot of our other sins, we say, yeah, you need to submit to accountability in your life. You need to talk with brothers and sisters about your struggle with, with lust or with hatred of other people or with bitterness or whatever, but we don't do that with our money. Church, I would submit, I know this is hard. I know there's a lot of legalism that can creep in. But as a community, find Christians that are wise and that you trust and start to submit your money to them and say, what do you see here? How can I be more generous? Help me. I, wanna, I want help in following Jesus. I think something countercultural like that would be helpful to us to grow in our generosity in following Jesus. But I think ultimately, in order for us to loosen the chains of greed from our hearts, we have to get down to the core and ask this question. Why are we greedy? Ultimately, at the foundational core, why are we greedy? And this is where we see, lastly, the promise that's for us in the Eighth Commandment. Why are we greedy? I would submit to you that ultimately, deep down, we are all greedy because we view God a lot more like Pharaoh than we would care to admit. We view God as a cruel taker rather than a generous giver. And I would also say, acknowledging God's rule and kingship over us and over our possessions isn't enough to overcome our greedy hearts. Think about this. Pharaoh was a ruler. Pharaoh claimed to own everything in Egypt, including the Israelite people. Kings can own everything and still be tyrants. What we need in order to overcome our white-knuckled clutch to our possessions with our heart. What we need to overcome greed and become people who are generous and who keep the Eighth Commandment is to truly see the generous heart of God. And think about the Eighth Commandment for a second. God didn't just give the Israelites fresh out of slavery, desperate for resources in the desert, he didn't just give them a command to not steal. God was leading them to the land that he promised to them, that he would generously give to them, a, a land that was described in terms like it was flowing with milk and honey because it was so abundant, it was so over the top, it was so lavish, it was so generous. God freed the people of Israel from slavery in order that he might lavish his riches upon them. That's God's heart for his people. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is 
not Pharaoh. And we see this same generous heart displayed lavishly in the person of Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Apostle Paul writes this. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Church, the, the way in which we turn from being self-seeking rulers to generous, generous stewards is beholding the lavish generosity of Jesus Christ. Though we were poor and had nothing to offer, the one with all wealth and power gave himself for us so that we might become rich. Jesus, though he was the rightful ruler over everything, gave the, the right to all of that up, and he became a man, and he died the death of a thief on the cross. Jesus identified with thieves. He died a death between two thieves. And he did this so that you and I, the very thieves who stole from him, who steal from him continually, and who withhold his resources from other people. He did this so that we could be showered with the very riches of heaven. And that's why Paul, at the beginning of this verse, says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lavish generosity that comes from the very core of who God is. The generous God gave everything for poor thieves like you and me so that we may possess the eternal riches of God. And only grace like that can transform us into generous people who keep the eighth commandment and, and to be people who say along with our Lord Jesus, it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Next week, Pastor Benjamin is gonna be speaking on the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness. And in an age of indifference about the truth, it is good news for us that we serve a God who is himself the very definition and standard of what is true. Would you pray with me? I'll have the band come back up. Father, we thank you for your generous heart. We thank you that you gave up all of the riches of heaven so that we might be exalted, so that our sin might be taken from us and so that we might be given your riches. Lord, we don't deserve it. We're so grateful for it. And we pray that through that generous gift, you would make us a generous people, people that keep the eighth commandment, people that are, as you say in the book of Isaiah, oaks of righteousness by the way that we generously give away what is rightfully yours. So help us and change us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we look to Jesus Christ, who shows us the generous heart of God. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.